0: Thank you. With another episode of Midnight on Earth, I'm your host Jake Weaver, and we are here to bring you more knowledge, more light, and more love. Incredible guest this week! We're going to be talking with a man named Richard Kretz about the alchemical search for the unified field and so much more. That's the new book that he wrote. It's absolutely incredible. We're going to be talking to him. It's going to be mind-blowing. The Philosopher's Stone, so much more. But first, I need you to do something for me. Follow me on Instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That is the address. You can follow me there. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you go to get your podcasts. Click that button that connects us so you know exactly exactly What's going on in real time? You get that notification when someone as incredible as Richard Krentz comes on the show, just like all of our incredible guests. You get that text or perhaps message to your Neuralink, depending on when you're listening to this. Not sure, but that's what happens. <laughs> and of course, tell a friend, tell someone that you know that loves these type of podcasts. You know them, you know their frequency, you know my frequency, match our frequencies for me. Help me get there. Bring them here, midnightonearth.com. Okay, so we are about to talk to author, shaman, freemason, so many different things. Richard Kretz, we're about to talk to him, but first I need to read his bio. So here we go. R.E. Kretz has worked in the telecommunications and IT Industries, and in the 1970s, he studied Transcendental Meditation under Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and later spent three years with a Native American shaman. He was raised to the degree of a Master Mason and has served as Master of a Lodge as well as holding many leadership roles within the Knights Templar. His recent book, which we are going to be discussing today, is called The Alchemical Search for the Unified Field, Pythagorean, Hermetic, and Shamanic Journeys into Invisible and Ethereal Realms. So, <laughs> And currently, he's in Churchill, Tennessee, and he's here with us now. Hello, Richard. Hey, how you doing, Jake? Thank you so much for joining us. Incredible book. We're going to have a deep deep conversation, I feel like. So tell me, what is the motivation of writing this book? Where did you get the inspiration?
1: Well, I I could give you all kinds of canned stuff, you know. It's like, all right. <laughs> well, I I read The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown, you know, and Robert Langdon, you know, who's a symbolist. Uh he was inspirational, of course. And then you can say talk about uh carlos castaneda and um the Yaki way of knowledge with his sorcerer don juan and you put them do together and and that's kind of what i do but the real inspiration was that i had questions We had a lot of questions and you know i i embarked on this quixotic quest you know and the, I wasn't chasing after windmills to find answers, and I was hoping that masonry would be a vehicle to do that, but it was just like Don Juan had, or excuse me, uh, Don Quixote had, it turned out to be a mule, okay? But aside from that, you know, I had all these questions, and so I was trying to find answers, and it seemed every which way I turned, everyone I spoke to, uh, I wasn't getting satisfactory responses. Uh, most of the time, it was something that was biblical, or it was an existential, uh, philosophical thing, you know. And I don't have much tolerance for that. So, you know, uh, yeah, as you found out earlier, you know, I'll call you out on it. But, uh, you know, so you know, I decided, well, I've got to saddle up and 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 do this on my own. So I started reading voraciously, um, and and digging through you know, tons of books, uh, looking, you know, everywhere I could on the internet. You know, if I had a question, I would write it down and I would seek out the answer. And oftentimes in my research, I would find that the answers I was looking for were not what folks were telling me they were. So it's like, hmm, there's got to be a reason for that. But the bottom line, the reason I wrote this book is because if I had questions, I knew folks like you had had the same questions. And if I had invested all this time and effort in, in getting answers, you know, why should I say, you know, well, you know, Jake, you need to go out and, and do your own work, you know, figure it out for yourself. No, because a lot of people don't really know how to even begin uh let alone where to look look for answers like this you know when we're talking about the esoteric and the occult so i felt i had an obligation to share my knowledge with those that were also on this path seeking illumination
0: so this is your aggregated accumulated knowledge up until this point you feel like this book which came out in july of 2023 is really the summation of everything you've learned that you can share with other people.
1: It's the tip of the iceberg. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you you can't concentrate a lifetime of knowledge into a few pages. Uh, And if you read the book, you will find that it is very, very chock full of information. It's very condensed. They're concentrated. Um, it's not a whole lot of flowery prose. You know, it gets right into, you know, the heart of things, the oper- operative mechanics. Okay, how does this darn thing work? What is it? You know, along with the explanations. And then we combine that later on towards the end with the shamanic experience of how do we apply it to our daily life? And in that regard, uh, my teacher used nature to impart life lessons for me to understand the meaning of our existence
0: of death and rebirth. So that's the alchemical search, you would say. And then what is the unified field? Well, the unified field, you know, is something that is alluded to. I
1: really don't discuss it in depth in, in, in this book because that that'll be covered off in an, in another book that'll be coming out probably in about two years
0: yeah, sneak uh, preview people but
1: yeah sneak preview uh but the philosopher stone actually uh as you and i had discussed uh pre-show uh involve has three attributes uh the first portion of it is uh, transformation uh which involves alchemy and and that's what alchemy is all about it's a process of transformation, whether it's uh, physical or spiritual. Uh, And then we look at the other attributes of the Philosopher's Stone, uh, one of which is immortality. And immortality alludes to time. So the question really is, is when we're speaking of immortality, can we also simultaneously be referring to travel in the space-time continuum? You know, looking at it as a time as a fourth dimension, uh, in addition to the three spatial dimensions. Uh, And then we're also looking at uh, the third attribute, which would be the uh, elixir of life. And we have to define, okay, well, what is the elixir of life and how does that, you know, uh, play into all of this uh, with regards to the Philosopher's Stone? the elixir of life, it seems to be a vehicle for panspermia, okay? In other words, seeding life on other worlds. And all of this comes out of a geometric model of the Philosopher's Stone that, you know, in a two-dimensional form is usually what folks uh, envision as the symbol of it, where you have a, uh, a circle containing a triangle containing a square. That has another circle, and there may or may not be something inside that interior circle. Um, that's similar to what it actually is. But if we extrapolate that out and look at it in a three-dimensional aspect, and that's the whole thing about working with the occult, the esoteric. We have to learn how to see beyond. Yes. Not just what is in front of us, but you know. And, and this is in, in more than just shifting our, our, our world paradigms. We have to eliminate the construct of the box that we are have been functioning in. We have to get rid of all of that so that our vision will become much broader and we can see beyond. We have to just, you know, think well beyond the box itself, get rid of the box. So, you know, in a three-dimensional aspect, We're looking at this model of the stone as uh, the five Platonic solids that Pythagoras actually discussed. And we find that, yes, you know, we have not just Western occultism, Hermeticism, okay, Uh, we are also looking at Eastern mysticism through Vedic science. Everything, you know, becomes blended into one. Um, you can't, you know, all they are these different modalities. Uh, they're if you really take and look at them side by side, they're expressing essentially the same thing, only they're coming at it from different directions, different points of view. So, there is this overlap, they're essentially the same thing, and that's that's what you know. So, for someone to get hung up on, say, okay, hermeticism. You know, this is the only way that we can really look at it, you know, uh, or, you know, the Eastern mystics saying, OK, it's purely Vedic science. Or if it's shamanic, which is nature based, you know, it's all essentially the same thing. You know, it's just like with, you know, the various religions throughout the world. The core message of all of them is the discussion of caring for one another. It's all about love. Yes. and charity. And charity is nothing more than love in action.
0: Service. Exactly. And this is what you're talking about when you're saying the philosopher's stone. It's not really this specific stone, but it's a concept. It's a core set of functions within the deepest part of spirituality that shows up in every culture around the world.
1: Right. And what I'm trying to share in, in this book is that the stone resides within each of us. Yes. So what I am trying to do is to explain, okay, it's kind of like a how to, you know, <laughs> this is, you know, the operative mechanics of how it really works so that you can understand it. And then once we understand how it works, then we can actually put it to use, you know, right. and benefit from it. And that, that's the whole idea behind all uh, all of this, you know, it's not to get all philosophical because that's a waste of your time and my time. If you want philosophy, there's tons of, of books out there on philosophy. The thing about philosophy, philosophy is great about asking questions, <laughs> but it rarely ever answers them. That's true. I'm here. To, I'm here to provide you with answers, and that's what this book does.
0: So, in your book, you talk about how a quest for the philosopher's stone is a quest for the grail so how are they related is that the same thing again it's a matter of
1: perspective you know um do you really want to say that the philosopher's stone is the grail um yeah you can't say that it's you know what your personal take is on it what do you really want it to be and that's the whole thing we see what we want to see And we believe what we want to believe, you know, and that's who we are. You know, I can't say, uh, Jake, you know, this is specifically, you know, whatever an object happens to be, because when you see it, you might see it as something else or that it might be capable of doing something else. Uh, So. To say that the grail is the philosopher's stone, yes, we can say that. Because when we're in search of the grail, the grail, from an alchemical perspective, is seeking a higher level of consciousness. I mean, we can get back into the Arthurian stories, you know, where we have Sir Gawain who is going out and he actually sees the grail, uh, but he doesn't recognize it for what it is. Initially, he fails to ask a question. Or excuse me, that was Percival. So, you know, years later, he's still questing to find it again. And once he does, and he remembers to ask the question, King Arthur is healed. The land is healed. Camelot returns. So you can say, yes, in that regard, the grail
0: is about transformation. uh, Does that answer your question? Absolutely. This is just one example of how this concept of the Philosopher's Stone is transmuted and changed to different cultures. But the crux, the idea is the same of what they're going after, that higher level of consciousness, truly like the new earth, like Eckhart Tolle talks about.
1: Oh, yes. And if you've read Eckhart Tolle, uh, he will tell you that this process of transformation, uh, metamorphosis, uh, it's a very painful and and that's one of the things that you're you're told about in <laughs> within Vedic science as you're as you're looking at how do we attain that higher level of consciousness how do we attain what we refer to as enlightenment well we have to first of all as Toll would say burn off our ego we have to divest ourselves of the superfluities of life we have to, realize, you know, we have to go through this pain and this suffering. It's just like when a caterpillar goes into a cocoon. You know, it's not a very pleasant experience for that caterpillar, you know, to go through this metamorphosis. But later on, he emerges to become a beautiful butterfly. You know? so And that's what we're looking at here. There's a lot of pain and suffering involved. So, as you go through life and you come on hard times, it's part of this metamorphosis, because if you can endure and persevere, experience those difficult times, and you're able to get through it, you'll have greater compassion for someone that is going through it, that is going down that same path that you have. So you have this sense of understanding, because you've experienced where they are at. and. You, you know what it's like. And even after you've come through this, you know, and become better than you once were, you don't forget it. You know, and that's why I say, you know, you become more compassionate, uh, more charitable. You're more willing to reach out. Most importantly, you're looking beyond yourself. It's all about looking beyond. That's the whole thing here. And... It's like the microcosm, we are a microcosm within the macrocosm of the universe. Right. We're we're so consumed and centered on ourselves. Very we're, you know, as human beings, we're we're very narcissistic. You know, we're we're, you know, and that's just the way it is. You know, we're all about us. But as you go through this process, you realize that. Individually, we really aren't that important, that our concerns aren't just for us individually, but for us collectively, you know, moving us, you know, as a species, as a planet, you know, as life forward, because if we can take that approach everyone everything benefits and that's really what it's all about when it comes to finding our place in the universe to become one with the universe and if you're familiar with the the universal uh, principles, uh, hermetics you know one of the first principles is that of mentalism and mentalism is that the all is part of everything. And everything is part of the all. It's a matter of oneness.
0: Yes. And we can evolve together by contributing each lifetime. You talk in your book about reincarnation. And I think the point that you're trying to make here is that our lives should be dedicated to service for the greater forward progression of the human experience. When we're here as humans, and I've talked to people that are. Essentially on their deathbed, just dying, and they feel like their entire life went by in five minutes. Their perception of time has shifted in such a way that their entire life, all their experiences up until that moment, seem like such a short amount of linear time. So, with that in mind, we have five minutes here. So, the only thing we can do or should do as high frequency beings, as spiritual beings, is dedicate our lives to service to help move forward. Cause you know what? We're gonna be back anyway. You're gonna be back experiencing the work that you did. Exactly.
1: You know, and you know, this goes way back. And if you're looking at, you know, uh authority figures, we can take and look at the Prince of Wales as an example. Do you know what the motto is for the Prince of Wales? No. Ich dien. Okay. It's German for I serve. Oh. And it comes back to what you were talking about before. It's the idea of selfless service. In order to lead, we must first be able to serve.
0: Yes, absolutely. And service with the intention of giving. Not, not expecting anything in return. Of course there's energetic laws in place that the energy that you put out will come back to you. But if you dedicate your life to service, to utilizing your talents, discovering them and then applying them to your service, you're going to have the best life anyway. And you're giving back. It's that you're in the flow of the universe of life itself. Exactly. And, and that's why there's this, you
1: know, movement, you know, towards charity among those that are more fortunate because, and they're not necessarily, I mean, you do have folks that say, okay, yeah, I made this donation. I give to charity, you know, and they're seeking, you know, uh, recognition or or some benefit, even if it's a tax deduction, <laughs> you know, they're, they're looking for some recognition, some sense of reward, some benefit. But then you have, I think the majority of folks that make charitable, charitable contributions and they make them anonymously um, because' they're, they're truly not seeking the recognition or the reward. Uh, their reward is in helping others. Yes, you know when you, and that's really what the best reward that you can and
0: can actually have. Well, this is the illusion. I mean, we're literally living in a three-dimensional illusion that's both real and unreal at the same time. I don't know how it could be that way, but it is. And after we leave here, those actions, those are the things that are going to matter. That's what carries over. That's what binds to the soul as the soul progresses from lifetime to lifetime.
1: Oh, exactly. You know, unless we're in a holographic video game, you know, and then if somebody hits the great reset, <laughs> I
0: like, Oh, I tripped over the plug. Oops. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was just having this discussion about this. Tell me what you think. One indicator. Now I don't believe we're living in a simulation. I do believe we exist within the mind of the all, but an alien computer simulation I'm not sold on. However, the biblical stories of Moses and the Jews traveling through Egypt and then manna appearing out of nowhere and and feeding them and sustaining them. Where did that come from? That seems like something that would happen in a video game where your character is about to die. You hit this button and then they get this food and they are able to continue their quest.
1: Oh, we could have a wonderful discussion about all this. You know, I I, I don't think this is going to be the, today will not be the form for that. All I will say is, I'm not saying it's the aliens, but
0: it's the aliens. Ah, Well, of course, that's the next time you're on the show. That is where we will go, my friend. Okay, so tell me more about alchemy, though. Because a lot of people hear this term and they think about medieval kind of early scientists trying to turn material lead into material gold, but then they also hear about how it's metaphorical, where it's actually an enlightenment process, where you're the lead and you're turning yourself into spiritual gold, but there's even more to that. Can you tell us more about alchemy?
1: Okay, well, it's time to get the hip waders on. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Alchemy, you know, that's a scary word because folks generally just don't have an understanding of it. Um, you know, it basically is an ancient word for chemistry. Right. Chem refers to ancient Egypt, you know, and Al refers to God. Um, so it's basically just keep as chemistry. We'll keep it simple. Sure. Okay. What does it involve? Okay. And uh, in its essence it's a process of transformation. Okay. In that regard, we can look at it in the way that most people perceive it. And the initial one is that it is changing lead into gold from a physical perspective. Okay, that's how we're going to approach this first, from a physical transformation perspective. Changing lead into gold. Is it possible? Yes, it is possible if you have a nuclear reactor because you have to change the atomic structure of lead uh, to make it something that it is not, okay? Even though lead and gold, I think, are only uh, maybe three or four atomic numbers apart, their characteristics, their properties are very different. So were the ancient alchemists really talking about that kind of a transformation? No, they were not, not really. What they were discussing was the refinement of galena. Now, galena is a raw lead ore. And as a raw lead ore, instead of an element, it's imbued with a lot of impurities. Uh, Galena is a primary source for silver. It also has trace amounts of gold in it. So that's where we're getting into this alchemical process, this transformation. It's a refinement, kind of like a synonym for transformation is refinement. Okay. It's just like uh with the fossil fuels, you know, we refine oils. We're we're transforming or uh you know petroleum products. But anyway, sure. So what do they do? Uh in this process, you take this raw this raw lead ore, and you heat it up in an apparatus that's kind of like a double Dutch oven. It cooks it, it cooks it down, and you burn off all of the impurities. Um noxious gases are escaping as this thing is uh cooking. And you know, you've got uh some sulfides uh that are combined with uh mercury vapors. Very, very poisonous, you know, and, and and this is where you hear about incidents and, alchem, and alchemy, because if you inhale that stuff, it's going to kill you really quick. Uh, so you have to be very, very careful, pay close attention to detail. So you've got these gases that are being emitted. And as you're burning this stuff down, you end up with nothing but a little pile of ash. And in the middle of all of this, you end up with this chunk of pure lead. And on this lead is a white powder. Uh, that white powder is referred to as a bullion. And within that bullion, you, you've got some other impurities, but it's mostly silver with trace amounts of gold in it. And these trace amounts of gold are referred to as its salts. And salts can mean a number of things within chemistry. But in this regard, it's referring to a minuscule amount. I mean, very small amounts of gold. So that's the first portion of the process. So you've got all the galena, you've burned off the impurities, but you're not done yet. You do have your piece of pure lead that you were able to get out of it. You scrape off this white powder, but to get the silver and the gold, you have to distill that further so that's another portion of the process and you go through this whole thing and ultimately you separate the silver out burn off some more impurities and you have just a few little grains of gold (laughs) that you're able to get out of it (laughs) so it's a refinement process and it's far more practical than to say, oh, I'm going to do, you know, change up the atomic structure of one element to another. You know, it just didn't quite work like that. They didn't have that capability back then. Um, So that's the first aspect. And the process of burning something off, you know, you take your your product, your, your substance, and burning it off, okay, getting rid of, most of the impurities, and then distilling it down further is the essence of really what alchemy is when it comes to a transformation. So that's how we apply it to uh, changing lead into gold. Uh, We can move forward into uh, spagyrics. I believe I pronounced that correctly. Yes, yeah, Spigerix.
0: Actually, we've had uh, Feral Fungi. Jason Scott, the leader in Spigerix, his company, Feral Fungi, they make some of the most incredible products out there. And I was thinking about him right when you said that.
1: Yeah. Well, was he a fun guy? He's a very fun guy. <laughs> okay. So you know, Spigerix. Uh, it's the process is the same. And how does that essentially work? Well, he probably shared a lot about that with you. Yes. In that, but I'm going to elaborate on it and take you someplace that you weren't expecting. Okay. So, part of that process, you're dealing in spigerics with plants, Uh, flowers, plants, the roots, bark, you know, all that kind of good stuff. And in that process, one of the things that you hear referring to is deadheading. Okay? So you go out in the pre-dawn morning and you go collect these flower tops that still have the dew on and that's called deadheading. And you put them in a sealed container for a while and then you cook them down and until they're black and what you're trying to do is get the oils off of, the essential oils off of them. So you know, that's how that portion of the process done, is done. It's the same thing where you're going to try and burn something down and then you're going to distill what remains to make it even more pure. And this is where I'm going to shift gears on you and tell you something that you, you probably don't know. Okay. I don't know how I don't know how well, you know, the Bible but, um, pretty well, but you we will see. <laughs> <laughs> so. Did you know that they discuss phajerics in the Bible?
0: Ah, oh, you got me there. No, I did not know that.
1: Oh, yeah, in the New Testament of all places. Okay. Most definitely. Remember when uh, John the Baptist was taken prisoner? Yes. Okay. And he's down in his cell, and um, Herod Antipas, I believe it was, was celebrating his birthday upstairs. And his stepdaughter Sloan is dancing for him. And she dances for him only if he promises her to give him into only if he gives her what she wants. What does she want? She wants the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. Right. Okay, well, what does that have to do with all this? It's a dead head on a silver platter. In other words, it's the beginning of an alchemical process at a full moon, because a silver platter represents a full moon. (gasps) So it's the beginning of the alchemical process, Spigarix. And it continues through the crucifixion of Jesus, where we have our spiritual transformation. But it begins with the execution of John the Baptist.
0: Oh, my God. I've never thought of it that way before.
1: That's mind blowing.
0: As Paul Harvey would say. Ah! And now, you know,
1: the rest (laughs) of the story.
0: (laughs) And God bless Paul Harvey. We love that guy. That's incredible because this is something that is interwoven, I think, in all of these ancient texts and a lot of these uh, rituals and texts of secret societies is that there's layers and layers and layers of metaphor. It's a multidimensional experience. There's nothing linear about it. You can get value from the linear information, but when you really start to break things down multidimensionally, that's where the Pandora's box of all the enlightenment codes and the metaphysical information come into play.
1: Exactly. And they were very steeped in allegory and metaphor, right? Uh, because they could take a simple phrase and depending on who the audience was and how educated they were, how steep they were in the in understanding the ancient traditions is the message that they could take away from it. Um, and you know the bible is a prime example i just shared one you know aspect of allegory with you uh there's many others uh but allegory is throughout the bible and there's many many layers it's not just this you know the moral stories there's a lot of information there about sciences astronomy uh music but you have to understand you know where all this is coming from, in order to be able to say, Oh yeah, there's
0: an additional message in here that I've missed, <laughs> just like I shared. Yeah. So do you think that these metaphors and allegories were placed there as a form of self-initiation? Meaning when a person reads it literally, perhaps they live their life and expand and grow, have spiritual experiences and they go back and that's there for them to sh- extrapolate when they raise themselves to that vibration where they're able to process that data. Is it a form of self initiation where it's there to activate humans through millennia and throughout history?
1: I don't know if I would say it's, it's strictly self activating. Um, part of it, you know, is, is, You know, for those that have gone through some of the ancient mystic schools um, or mystery schools uh, where they have been educated and are able to recognize these different layers, it's all a a matter of understanding. And, well, let me digress for a moment. I'll put it to you like this. Within Freemasonry. We have what's referred to as the seven liberal arts and sciences, okay? Uh, Which are uh, grammar, rhetoric, logic, or dialectic, uh, mathematics, geometry, music, and astronomy. Well, the first three of these, which are, are grammar, rhetoric, and logic, or dialectic, are referred to language, Language is the foundation of all our understanding, okay? Um, And it's a progression that we're dealing with here. The language aspects of the seven liberal arts is referred to as the trivium because it has three, okay? Grammar, rhetoric, and, and logic, right. three of them. So within that, we have to understand what words are. And not just the meanings that we think of today, but what are the archaic definitions? You know, what is the history? What is the etymology of that word? Some of the archaic uses of it. And I'll give you an example here, Um, one of which is master. When you hear the term master, it's like, oh, that's someone that is in charge right okay he's the master of a lodge he's in charge of it right uh, oh he has a master of arts degree that means or he's a master mason in other words they've attained a certain level of knowledge skill and ability but master has another another meaning that's very archaic in other words it's something old and out of use right that folks don't think about not Regularly, anyone.
0: Uh, are you familiar with the actor Russell Crook? Of course. Yes. He played in Gladiator and uh, has been in several movies, actually. Keep, keep, keep going. There was one that had a ship in it, right? What was uh, that called? Oh, uh, Master and Commander.
1: Oh, my yes. goodness.
0: <laughs> I remember.
1: Master is an ancient way of referring to a navigator. Ah. Uh. The master was in charge of getting the ship from point A to point B. And he had certain working tools. He had compasses. He had a plumb to measure the depth, okay, the horizontal depth. He used straight edges, you know, to go from point A to point B. He also uses what in navigation today they term as dividers, masonry recalls and compasses but used to inscribe arcs and circles you know and to measure from point a to point b so a master is also a navigator and he wasn't necessarily the captain of the ship and that's why in in that movie russell crow is referred to as the master and commander because he was both the navigation officer and the captain of
0: the ship. Ah, so then master almost takes on a shamanic connotation because it's not necessarily the leader, but the moral and ethical guidepost. you could say, the compass. That's right. So you did yourself have an experience with the shaman that came into your life, as you talk about in your book. Since we just talked about that, tell me about this person named Charles and how that affected your life?
1: Well, for most of my life, you know, I was dealing with the Western aspects of occultism, esoterica, however you want to phrase it. They mean different things, but that's how folks understand it uh, as synonymous, even though they really are. (laughs) Um, So you know, it is very structured if you're if you're dealing with Hermeticism or Vedic science. Very, very structured, okay. Which means that it's masculine in its application, that it is very left brain. Okay. I'm pretty sure I got that right. Masculine is left brain. Feminine is right brain. Okay. <laughs> pretty sure I got that straight. So you know, uh, I'd been doing this most of my life, you know, and I had done very, very well. And I got to this one point to where I plateaued and it seemed that regardless of what I was doing, I just couldn't move any further. So about that time, you know, I had become a master mason, had just been raised up and I had always had this affinity for nature as well, but I never related the two, you know, my love of nature with this occultist background. uh, It just didn't come to mind. So I was involved with uh, a birding club and a nearby town was having a migratory bird festival. So myself and several other folks, uh, we're out looking for places where that, you know, visitors could find good birds. We were given a lead to go visit with uh Charles and uh see if we could get permission to take some folks up to his place to, you know, if they had any good birds. Well, ultimately, yeah, he had some good birds and he agreed to let us bring some folks up. And he resided at the top of a mountain, and I resided in the valley right below. Uh which was kind of interesting. And he said, well, you know, since we're neighbors uh, out here in the country, being on the mountaintop and down in the valley, you know, that's close enough. You know, (laughs) Uh, he said, you know, why don't you come up, you know, and visit? Well, I did that. And uh, we shared this common love of nature. And that's how it actually began. We would just go, you know, walking across the mountain. Um, It was very rugged a uh, lot of underbrush, lots of rocks. And, uh, you know, we would just talk about, you know, plants, about the different animals, uh, the weather, um, the stars, you know, all sorts of stuff that was just very nature oriented. Um, and that's really how it began. And little by little, uh, he would send me off on, on you know, task tasks to do and they didn't seem like very you know important at the time but you know it would just build up and ultimately these led to actually going on vision quests um that were uh i'll just say quite inexperienced
0: (laughs) so when did he reveal his shamanic aspect to you. Was it while you were on these walks, looking at plants? I know you detail a lot of that in your book, which is incredible, but when did he really let you know that there was something supernatural going on? He never
1: really did. Oh, wow. Uh, it, it, it's just something we didn't talk about. Uh, we were just two guys, two friends that enjoyed being with nature up on the mountain. Uh, we didn't talk about ourselves at all aside from the first day that he told me his dad had been a Mason, but he wasn't. And he he had seen my ring, recognized that I was a Mason. He said, Masons are good people, but you have a lot to learn. (laughs) (laughs) That that was classic Charles. But yeah, we just never really talked about, we talked about nature. It was just kind of all part of, of one thing. It just seemed very natural, uh, you know, as, as things had had evolved there as far as what we were doing. He was teaching me. You know, I thought I knew a lot about nature when I went up and talked to him, you know, the first time and because I did know quite a bit about, you know, nature and plants and animals and things. But as we were walking along, you know, he'd point out a plant, uh, many of which I knew, many of which I didn't he would begin telling me uh about the plant about its uses how to recognize it during the different seasons right. uh and sometimes you know stories you know of, about these plants that you know how you know how like for example corn uh and why they were important you know or stories about uh maybe a, the cedar tree you know and why it had a red center in it uh So this is how he was communicating. He was using nature to teach me. And when he would send me out on a little task to go do something, you know, it's not something I would generally question. You know, I might not understand it, but, you know, he was I was learning. So I didn't really ask why I had to go do something. I just went and did it for that learning opportunity, that learning experience. sure. Um, and it was never anything that was formal or structured. It's just, you know, whenever I showed up, it's, okay, hey, great, you're here. Let's go for a walk. He just stopped what he was doing, and
0: that's what we would do. We would go walk the mountain. So essentially you had this training with Freemasonry. You had made it through the Blue Lodge, the three degrees. You had been raised as a master mason. And yet there was another layer of information, this natural layer that was coming to you through Charles to help you on your own evolution.
1: Exactly. And what I found uh later on, and again, you know, when you're going through this process. It is in and of itself a learning experience. Oftentimes you don't recognize it for what it is until it's much, much later. But what I've I've found out, what I learned here is that the shamanic training being nature based was feminine oriented. It was very fluid. It didn't have the, the the Western structure to it. Right. So What it enabled me to do was to find this union of opposites, this third pillar that (laughs) we often refer to, the Zohar. Okay. And within that, you know, you find that, okay, you get, you know, when you have the union of opposites, the union of the masculine and the feminine, and it, it comes together, it creates this divine spark yes, from which something else that is greater can grow. And that's what happened here. Having that shamanic experience, you know, came together with my Western background and enabled me to bring it together and become something greater than I was before.
0: Oh, my God. So the, these are universal laws, principles in play showing up in this way, this masculine energy, this feminine energy coming together to give birth to a new version of you. You you adapted that information. And like you said, you grew and evolved. And that's also part of the Philosopher's Stone. That's part of the crux of what the Philosopher's Stone is about. It's,
1: it's all about transformation, about metamorphosis. You know, and part of the what makes it difficult, that is painful, is not understanding it. (laughs) You know, know, it's hard. We can have physically or mentally challenging experiences that we perceive as possible or potentially, you know, painful where we're burning something off. But sometimes these lessons are coming to us and we don't recognize them for what they are until much later. And I'll share something with you about knowledge. Okay. Knowledge comes to each of us from many places and in many ways. Um, When we have the eyes that see, the ears that hear, and a heart that understands and appreciates and recognizes it for what it is, When we are duly and truly prepared, the knowledge will come. In that regard, you know, I didn't go and and seek Charles out as a teacher because I knew that I needed a teacher. I was already I was prepared in my heart. I was open to it. And once I was able to See and to hear and to appreciate what he had to offer. Then that knowledge came to me. That's when the teacher came to me. There's often this mistaken conception that, or I shouldn't say it's a misconception, that a student must go and seek the knowledge or seek out a teacher. But it's actually the opposite is true. When the student is ready, the knowledge will come. When the student is ready, the teacher will be there.
0: Absolutely. And that is caused, you could say, by integrating new information. There is an action that needs to take place. You don't necessarily want to seek out the teacher but you want to have a desire to learn and grow. And that desire will set up an attractive force that will attract the information, and then when you integrate that, you raise your vibration, and then you attract the teacher, much like the mystery schools of antiquity. That is how they receive their students. They never went out and uh, recruited people. <laughs> when the people were ready, when their energy, their personal vibration was resonating in such a way, that's when they ended up where they were supposed to be.
1: Yes. Oh, it's, you know, um, very powerful.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: again, that's the way it always has been, whether it's, you know, in Western occultism or Eastern mysticism, uh, even within, you know, Native American cultures, uh, you're recognized for what you are. Um, and it's pretty straightforward. Um, and that's where folks get frustrated, I think, you know, when they embark on this quest is they become so laser focused on it. They're trying so hard that they miss out on the opportunity because they don't see it and I'll, I'll share a little story along that line if you don't care oh sure go for it you know one early on like charles and i were up on the mountain one of the first lessons that i had with him is uh we'd been up there walking around most of the day pretty high elevation lots of scrub brush you know all around and a gazillion rock Right, We're never on a trail or anything. We're just always going cross country. And we're out in the middle of nowhere, about 4,000 feet up. And he takes his walking stick and he points at a rock. And he says, "Uh, lift that rock up. There's a snake that lives under there and I want to talk to him. And uh, and I'm like, "Uh, yeah, right. Here we are in the middle of freaking nowhere. A gazillion rocks all around us. And he's telling me there's a snake under this one that he wants to talk to. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. (laughs) So, you know, I had my doubts. I lift uh, lift the rock up. And lo and behold, there is a snake under. And he reaches down and he picks the snake up. And the snake wraps around his arm. And he looks at the snake. He says something to it. And then he thrusts it out in front of me, (laughs) and he says, is it a boy or a girl? (laughs) Hell, I don't know. Get it out of my face. (laughs) Right? And so, you know, he's looking at it, you know, and he says, my, look at this. He's got a forked tongue. He doesn't know if he's a boy or a girl. He doesn't know a truth from the lie. He doesn't know right from wrong it's no wonder he's got a bad temper he's confused you know he's nice to me right now but maybe he'll he'll change his mind in a moment and and bite me you know but he says even with all that with his bad temper the snake is wise the snake is knowledgeable yes he likes to hide under things or he climbs trees and hides in bushes but the snake is knowledgeable and the snake is wise. If you don't look at him directly, you won't scare him. And if you don't scare him, if you just kind of look at him sideways, he can show you which path to take. And with that, Charles said something else to the snake. He set it down. We watched it slither off out of the corner of our eye. And a few minutes later, we went in the direction of the snake and went. And that's how we can go about solving problems. Um, Sometimes we become so intent, so focused on what is in front of us that we miss the opportunities. We have to be open-minded and say, okay, if I can't hit this thing head on and solve it, and I'm banging my head on this wall, Maybe if I come at it from a different direction, I can find a way in. If I can't get through the front door, maybe there's a window of opportunity.
0: Wow, that's a beautiful story. It's and it really lends itself to the concept of multidimensionality. Information is different on different layers and different dimensions. In third dimensional reality, in a linear sense, you might process that snake as, like you said, a traditional snake, but he was able to look past that, get that other set of information that exists in those planes, and then adapt that to that situation. It's really, really powerful. I love shamanic stories. Well, well, when you think about it, okay, well, what
1: does a serpent represent? A serpent represents knowledge, wisdom, healing, you know, immortality. You know, it, it, ha- it has a lot of symbolism there, but at the core of that lesson, it was duality. Uh, it was a lesson in duality.
0: Interesting. Interesting. And also, like you said, using your higher intellect, your spiritual self to interact with something that will guide you. Something as simple as a snake can actually guide your life in a path in the correct direction.
1: Absolutely. You know, we can go so far. By ourselves as individuals, but when we team up, you know, partner with someone else or something else, okay, when we lend ourselves to a collaborative effort, we can go much further, much easier
0: than we can if we try to go it alone. And that's really what teamwork is about. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'll, I'll relate this story to you. One day I was contemplating why human beings only have two hands when it would be really nice to have a stabilizer, you know, like that third hand to hold the box. And then later that day, I needed help turning this wheel, this water wheel. Several people joined me and they all put their hands on the wheel and we all pulled it together and turned the wheel. And that, made sense to me. I was like, okay, it's because we are supposed to unite. And you talk about in your book, how Meyer, the author Meyer suggested that by changing our thoughts and deeds as individuals, humankind's collective soul is influenced and changed. And that's a powerful thing because that work that we do, it may seem very Mm -hmm. localized, like we're doing it on ourselves, but Everything's interconnected. We're all one. So it reflects out. It ripples out and changes the universe. Absolutely.
1: But, you know, know, what I was trying to share in that is that, you know, again, you know, the Western thought was very structured and without realizing it, limiting in what I was able to do. And it wasn't until I was able to experience the nature-based shamanic application of it you know and merge that, you know uh, unify those two opposites that I was able to actually really move forward. but it it took you know that how should because it was radically different from anything I had expected, right you know but it was being able to recognize it for what it was as a learning opportunity and then apply it. And that's what I'm trying to share in the book. Yeah, we go through in the second portion of the book, uh, the operative mechanics of the Philosopher's Stone uh, meditation and all of that, you know, from a very formal, you know, structured uh, way of looking at it from, for example, a 16th century alchemist. And then I flip it on you in that last portion, you know, with uh, when I relate, you know, my shamanic experiences. And the reason I do that and the reason that it works is that we find that by blending together, it provides a greater understanding so that yes, we've had this acquisition of knowledge and now we know how to actually use it.
0: We can apply it to our, to our lives in a daily manner. Yes. I did love that about the book as well. And I loved how you modeled it actually after the Three Degrees of Freemasonry, you separated the book into three parts, like you were saying, because you have a very long history with Freemasonry. Can you tell me about that yes. a little bit? Let's talk about that just a little bit here. On both sides of my family, you know, uh,
1: men have been Masons for many, many generations. Uh, so, you know, there's a bit of a legacy there that I have to carry on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I don't think, think of it as anything you know, important, you know, it's not that big a deal.
0: (laughs) Right. But you do feel like it is one pathway for people to experience kind of the mysteries, the mystery school knowledge.
1: It really is. Um, But you have to accept it for what it is at face value. Um, There are wonderful learning opportunities available uh, through masonry. And the way I look at the Lodge is it's this huge library, like the Library of Congress. There's tons and tons and tons of information in there. The reason I went to Lodge was to learn. The reason many go to Lodge is for the social opportunities the interactions, and some go because they want to get recognition, uh, have a sense of purpose, uh, you know, have some influence uh, to get, you know, degrees and awards. (laughs) So, you know, it's just kind of like going to church. The question I would pose is when you go to church or synagogue or mosque, are you going because – You want to learn to pay your respects to, to, to deity, to God. Uh, are you going there because you like the people? Or are you going there because they have a nice uh, spread of food after, after service,
0: (laughs) I think it's different for different people. And I think that most people do not go there for the learning, which is the crux of the whole experience.
1: And, and that's where they become misguided. They say, oh, I don't like going to this place of worship or that place of worship. When, you know, what it boils down to is they may not agree with, you know, the uh, the religious leader, you know, whether it's a pastor or a rabbi or an imam. Um, they may not like the people that are in the congregation, you know, or maybe the food is just sucks, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you know, but my point is that the reason that you go to church, the reason that you go to lodge is for the message. It's to learn the leadership, the people, the food, the social activities should have absolutely nothing to do with the reason that you're there. You have to go for you and what you hope to get from it.
0: And it almost seems like 1% of the participants, you could say that about every religion and things like Freemasonry, maybe 1% of the people are actually there with that intention. Yeah. And, And I've noticed Richard that, It seems like 99.9% of all the ancient mystery school information, the enlightenment information is out there in the world in books and websites and people have been writing about it for hundreds of years. It just seems like there, there really isn't much that's exclusive at this point.
1: Well, for heaven's sakes. Yeah. They get hung up on
0: their secrets,
1: you know, and that's all well and good. But, you know, just to, to tell it like it is, uh, very, very few Masons today know what the secrets of Masonry are. Um, they, they get caught, they, they just don't know. Um, and that has become a real issue with membership in the fraternity. Um, the average age of a Mason right now across the board is somewhere close to 70. It's right at 70 in the death zone, dude. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, life expectancy for a male is roughly 77, 78 years old. So what does that tell you? If the average age is 70 and the life expectancy is 78, <laughs> that, that's, that's not looking good. And the numbers are are declining. They're dying off. Why? Because they're not replacing those who are are dying with younger people. Uh, And there's a number of reasons for that. And I think one of the reasons is these older brothers, bless their hearts, they have good intentions. They really, truly do. They're good men. But they're set in their ways entrenched in their in their attitudes, beliefs, and values and they don't understand esoterica they don't understand occultism their emphasis most of the time is biblical morality and that's what they're going to try to explain you know questions with because that's what they relate to, they relate to the Bible and it It's got to be the answers have to be in the Bible or you'll end up receiving, um, you know, existentialist uh, philosophy uh, based on human nature. You know, in other words, they're just guessing. (laughs) And that's really what it boils down to. So, you know, the issue with the membership is they're not getting they're not able to. Engage and captivate a younger audience. And the younger audience is really, really hungry for, you know, this occult and esoteric information. They really are. So what happens? Oh, in 2004, 2005, we had two great movies that came out that were wonderful opportunities to improve uh, membership within the fraternity. And I'm talking about the Da Vinci code right. and national treasure. Right. There was, there was a lot of interest, you know, folks are going to the theaters are seeing these great movies. They've got tons of questions. So look at the young guys asked Mason said, yeah, I'd like to be one, you know, I, I want to learn the secrets. You know, I want to be like, you know, Robert Langdon there in the Da Vinci code or, Nicholas Cage in in National Treasury, you know, finding all this stuff. And the and the brothers, you know, again, we're talking older gentlemen. And their response was, Oh, well, the Masons aren't a secret society. We're a society of secrets. Okay, that's cool. If if I join, I'll learn the secrets, right? Well, yeah, right. Uh-huh. So a younger guy will join. You know, goes through all this process of becoming a member. It takes months. And he goes to Lodge, and he finds out once he gets raised up and has gone through the degrees, it's a business meeting. There really isn't any education and training. Um, they'll have maybe a five-minute education uh, spiel sometime during the meeting but it's really not imparting any knowledge. There's nothing of substance there. And here you've got this younger guy. He's in this fraternity with these guys are two, three times his age. And they no sooner get out of meeting, than they're going down and get something to eat. And they're talking about stuff. This younger dude, you know, can't relate to because, you know, it's, 30 to 50 years, <laughs> you know, disconnected from him. So there's this huge disconnect. After a couple of meetings, the younger guy is saying, well, you know what? I'm not getting a good return on my investment here. You know, my time is limited. I'm already working two jobs or my wife and I are both working. I've got kids. I'm not spending any quality time with my family. You know, I, I'm, I can better use my time doing something with my family uh, or at least something that I personally am getting a benefit from. Um, the dues are keep going up and up. Uh, and I can take and save that money. I'd much rather take you know hundred dollars and take my wife and family out to dinner somewhere or maybe spend a day at a beach, you know, have a good time, get some quality time then waste it you know, with these old farts.
0: And that's the conundrum. Yes, I can see how that could be a hindrance in attracting the younger generation. But the Freemason situation is that it stretches back hundreds of years into time immemorial. And because of that, there is a lot of value there. But if people don't know about it, In this age of people being inundated with information constantly, if they don't know about it, if they're not aware of it, it doesn't matter if they're the same frequency or not. There's a lot of distortion out there that's blocking it. So it's like they may be the right frequency, they may be attracted, but they're not going to find it because of the sheer oversaturation of media, of things that are vying for their attention.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, and they get caught up in these secrets. You know, uh, as far as what their rituals and things are all about, well, number one, they don't understand them themselves. You know, they get very caught up in okay, rote memorization of the catechisms, of the actual uh, performance of a ritual. The act, excuse me, the actions that you're you're performing as these little skits are going on, uh, or Rope memorization of the lectures themselves, you know, and, and that's all well and good. But the issue is that the meaning of the degrees, the meanings of the rituals, you know, why are they being performed, and the meanings of the lectures have been lost. They're just going through the motions. And what complicates matters is that the rituals and lectures, the way things are done, vary from one Masonic jurisdiction to another. Uh, whether it's between from one state to another uh, or one country to another, uh, they change. Compounding that, you have very well-intended Grand Lecturers who are responsible for the conduct of the degrees and the rituals and the lectures. And as well intended as they may be, they'll say, well, for whatever reason, we're going to make a change in the wording. okay? It may may seem minor. Uh, or we're going to make a change in the way something is done. Well, there are issues with that. It, number one, when that occurs, regardless of intention, it further differentiates the jurisdictions. Mm. You know, and that can lead to division, you know, and dissension, you know, and competition saying, okay, this jurisdiction, you know, is doing it the old ways. You know, they're better or worse (laughs) than... This this jurisdiction over here, which has changed things, you know, modified. Uh, but really, at the heart, the concern when those alleged minor changes happen and they continue to accumulate from one grand lecturer to the next over many, many years, is that the meaning, the original meaning of the ritual, the lecture degrees, is getting buried. It's becoming distorted and further lost. So they're not doing themselves any favors in making even the smallest nuance of a change. Because if you understand the trivium, understand the words, which is the first and most important portion of the seven liberal arts and sciences is when you begin changing those you're changing the meanings and as we how should i phrase that uh not compound um, as we expand on that
0: uh the meanings just become varied and and further and further changed and lost And that was the original intention is the allegorical and metaphorical meaning. If you start changing the script, you lose that. And there is a magic you could say in that original design. There was some very intense thinking and a lot of uh, actual human energy went into designing that, the spiritual energy. And I could see why that could be an issue for sure. But really, it just seems like Freemasonry is a valid place to find information, but They have to adapt. The 21st century is changing very, very rapidly. The modes, the methods, the techniques of engagement have just changed so much. It's almost hard to keep up. Um, Are you practicing right now? Are you still a practicing Mason or have you moved on? I've moved on, Um,
1: but to address what you have, you know, mentioned about the adaptation, you know, there, I have heard stories or at least that there are ideas of changes that are are forthcoming. Hopefully, you know, maybe the use of video games. (laughs) I don't know how effective and impactful that might be, uh, you know, to have a video game about the Templars or the Masons or whomever. Uh, You know, uh, what quality of a candidate are we really looking at
0: uh deriving from that that kind of a background it's an interesting concept to even think about some sort of freemasonry recruitment style video game or just giving people the information that's really what's missing i think that people just don't know exactly what it is and that it's even there in the caliber that it's there
1: yeah exactly you know and that's part of the reason you know i wrote this book is you know, I had these questions. I had concerns, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, if I had these questions and concerns, you know, uh, folks such as yourself and you, and your listeners, you you have them as well. And I I think that we need to put them on the table and look at them for what they are, you know, uh, and, and not try to to make them something that they are not, uh, and uh, address them and say okay you know what does this mean you know what is it it where is it it, what are the roots of it where is it coming from really what is it about you know that's what the secrets are um it's not necessarily going to be found in you know some religious dogma somewhere or philosophy as i said You know, philosophy is great. It's
0: really good for asking questions, but philosophy does not provide answers. Right. But your book, like you said earlier, it does provide some answers. And I do want to tell people where to find this, because this book is absolutely amazing. And it does break things down in such a way that you're going to grasp these core, very foundational concepts. So this book that we're talking about it is the alchemical search for the unifying field, Pythagorean, Hermetic, and Shamanic journeys into invisible and ethereal realms. You can find it on Amazon, you can find it anywhere that books are available and I know Richard that we can go on for hours. I feel like we're so similar. I I just actually didn't even look at the time. I was just locked into this conversation and realizing that we've gone quite a while. So before we go, before we take a break until the next time that you're on, Can you leave our audience with something? Can you tell them something that they can take with them and then also go check out your book?
1: Okay. Well, first of all, they may want to check out my website. Uh, It's just recently published. It's stonedtemplar.com. And that is stonedtemplar.com. And I'm on my Facebook author page is uh, R.E. Kretz. So if you go on Facebook and you do a search on R.E. Kretz, uh, I should come right up. And you should recognize the mugshot here. But anyway, (laughs) I would say that if I want to leave you with something memorable, is ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, And more than that, I would tell you to be a heretic because a heretic is someone that asks difficult questions that make those in power very uncomfortable. And that's why they receive that moniker. And... (laughs) If you're a heretic, heretic, expect to also be persecuted because that's what happens. Folks in power, folks that have influence, don't like to be made uncomfortable. So dare to ask questions. Dare to know thyself.
0: Yes, that's so beautiful. And also, don't be afraid of the answers because sometimes the answers aren't going to be what you expect. So, you ask the questions, you might think you know what the answer is going to be, but then it shows up in a different well, way. Absolutely.
1: And just remember <laughs> if you're on this quixotic quest for the answers, okay, and you're jousting with windmills, just remember Don Quixote Road Penalties. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you for that, Richard. StonedTemplar.com, the alchemical search for the unified field. Incredible interview. Thank you so much for being here, Richard. Oh, you're more than welcome. Uh, I look forward to coming back, Jake. Oh, it's going to happen. Believe it. It's definitely, obviously, you're writing another book. we got a sneak preview, so we're definitely going to have you back (laughs) on. So, yes, everyone. Excellent. Check out that website. Check out the book. Richard, please hold through the outro music and everyone, my God, what an episode we took the deep dive, the unified field alchemy, so much more Freemasonry and we'll see you next week, midnight on earth.